Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, you are three in one, one in three, God of our salvation, our heavenly Father, blessed Son, and eternal Spirit. We adore you as one being, one essence, one God, and three distinct persons for bringing sinners like us to your knowledge and to your kingdom. Father, you have loved us and sent Jesus to redeem us. Jesus, you have loved us and taken on our very nature, shed your own blood to wash away our sins, given us your righteousness to cover over our unworthiness. And Holy Spirit, you have loved us and entered our hearts. You have implanted eternal life there. You have revealed to us the glories of Jesus. Three persons and yet one God. We bless and praise you for love that is so undeserved, so unspeakable, and yet so wondrous so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. Father, we thank you that in fullness of grace you have given us to Jesus to be his sheep, his jewel, his portion. Jesus, we thank you that in fullness of grace you have accepted us, adopted us, and bound us to yourself. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that in fullness of grace you have exhibited Jesus as our salvation, implanted faith within our hearts, subdued our stubborn hearts, and made us one with him forever. Father, you are enthroned to hear our prayers. Jesus, your hand is outstretched to take our petitions. Holy Spirit, you are willing to help us in our weakness, to show us our need, to supply us words, to pray within us, to strengthen us so that we may not cease to pray. O triune God who commands the universe, you have commanded us to ask for those things that concern your kingdom and our souls. Let us forever live and pray as people who have been baptized into that threefold name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series in Mark this morning. You know, and I was thinking about this passage that we'll get to, but everyone has a friend who is a loudmouth. Everyone knows someone who speaks before they think. That might have been you at times. I know it's been me at times. But everyone knows someone who says things that maybe makes people cringe. You've been in those situations. Stupid things, maybe, rash things, maybe even things that everyone else was thinking but no one wanted to say because it would make everyone cringe. We know those types of things. You know, the classic example is, oh, hey, when's the baby due? And it's like, "Uh, I'm not pregnant. You, You can't come back from something like that. It's those types of comments. Well, today, we're gonna see the Apostle Peter have one of those moments. He's gonna say what everyone is thinking and it's gonna be one of those foot in the mouth moments. It's one of those things that he's going to say and probably regret immediately after. He is going to rebuke Jesus himself, and we're going to learn a lot from it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you just grant this morning that we may engage in contemplating just the mysteries of your wisdom with increasing devotion, uh, all for your glory and for our edification. Amen. So before we dig into today's passage, I think it's important that we do a quick kind of, as seen previously in the Gospel of Mark. 
So as you'll remember, the book opened with Mark's declaration that this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The first scene then opened in the desert, the wilderness. We saw a man wearing camel's fur, eating locusts, and prophesying about the soon-to-come Messiah. He cried out, Repent! Turn back to God! Confess your sins, the Messiah is coming. We then saw Jesus come onto the scene. He came from Nazareth and came to John to be baptized. Immediately after his baptism, we heard a voice boom from the sky, words from Psalms and Isaiah, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. After that, we saw the Holy Spirit drive Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. We saw him do battle with Satan, the adversary, the accuser himself. We saw Jesus emerge from this test victorious, battling Satan with the words of Scripture. And we saw Jesus emerge from the desert, preaching the theme that would be the theme of his entire ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Right after that, we heard Jesus call his first disciples, telling them, follow me. We then saw him casting out demons, healing the blind, the paralyzed, and the leprous. We heard the Pharisees question and accuse him about fasting and about the Sabbath. And we heard him declare, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We saw the crowd start to gather and follow him. We heard his family call him crazy. We heard the Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Spirit by declaring that Jesus was a pawn of Satan. From there, we sat at Jesus' feet as he taught many parables about the kingdom. Parables about seeds, about sowers and baskets and trees. We watched as Jesus walked on water, as he calmed the storm and his disciples were terrified. And yet we watched as Jesus gave them authority and sent them out to preach. We saw John the Baptist die, and we saw Jesus miraculously feed two crowds of thousands of people with just a few fish and a few loaves. We then watched this multiple times. The disciples just didn't get it. They completely missed the point of the various miracles that he did. And to be fair, Mark has made it clear that up to this point, Jesus has been a little bit cryptic about who he is. He spoke in parables. So we can't be too hard on the disciples. But imagine if you were reading Mark for the very first time. At this point, you might think, man, are these guys ever going to get it? I don't understand. They've seen him do all these things that we've just talked about and even more. Crazy stuff. Like he walked on water. And they are still like the blind man, just barely seeing. Kind of seeing as in a blur. Like they just got out of the optometrist's office. They see a little bit, but it's a blur. But the disciples had been wondering and hoping. I mean, they're still following him after two years. So they're, they're hoping and they're still wondering. They're curious and they're believing something about him. We don't know exactly what up to this point. You know they had to have those conversations at night. I mean, can you imagine the kind of conversations they had when he wasn't around? I mean, you can almost hear him sitting by the fire at night. Hey, Peter, do you really think that he's it, the Messiah? I don't know. He, do, he seems like it, doesn't he? What do you think, Simon? I don't know, but if he is, can you imagine what that might mean? Everything will change. Well, if you were here last week, you know that in the midst of all of the confusion about who this Jesus of Nazareth is, in the midst of all the questions, a light bulb went on. 
Jesus finally begins to press them on who they think he is. You might remember he asked, who do people say that I am? And they gave him answers, Elijah. Some people say one of the prophets. Some people think you're John the Baptist kind of reincarnated. And Jesus then began to press his disciples saying, but who do you say that I am? And we heard Peter speaking for the disciples confess for the first time, you are the Christ. You, Jesus, are the Messiah, the anointed one, the rescuer of Israel, the son of the living God. And that's where we left off last week. That's where we're at this morning. This is where we come into the story. Peter, speaking for all the disciples, has just made this huge declaration, a huge confession that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The first thing we're going to see today in the text is that they had a very deficient understanding of what and who the Messiah was supposed to be. They kind of had a tip of the iceberg understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to do. When Jesus drops the bomb on them of who he is and what he's going to do, we're going to see them stand there with open mouths. So Jesus is going to explain to them what they just confessed. Now remember, up until this point, Jesus has been really cryptic and kind of secretive about who he is and what he's about to do. But now, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, he's going to finally reveal to them what his mission is as Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One of God. He is going to announce four things to them. One, that this means he's going to suffer. Two, that he's going to be rejected by the entire leadership structure of Judaism. Three, that he's going to be murdered. And fourth, that he will rise. Four things, suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. So with that, would you turn with me to Mark 8, 31. Let's read. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, this is the first time that we hear Jesus talk like this in the Gospel of Mark. The first time we begin to see him reveal his divine mission. The first time he begins to shed more light on the disciples' understanding of what it means to be Messiah. He lists four things that will mark the Messiah. Four marks of the Messiah. The first one is suffering. The first thing that will mark the Messiah is suffering. The Messiah will be one who suffers many things. You'll see that in verse 31. He must suffer many things. He's going to live a life that is full of hardship. He will be one of those people who you look at and think, that poor guy can't catch a break. He is going to live a life that is full of painful experiences, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically. He's not going to catch any breaks. People are going to look at him and think, wow, God must not be on his side. That's what we saw in Isaiah 53. People will esteem him as stricken by God. In other words, people will look at him and think, man, God is punishing him for something. He's going to live that type of life. Isaiah 53 again calls Jesus a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows, one who will be acquainted with grief. And again, I will just remind you, this is God in human form. When God came down, he decided to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That should tell us something about who he is. Something about how we can identify with him and how he can identify with us. 
he knows what it is to feel sorrow and pain. The Messiah will be one who will bear much suffering. The second thing that will mark the Messiah is rejection. He is going to be rejected, Mark says, by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, which is essentially an all-encompassing way to say that he will be rejected by the entire Jewish leadership. It's kind of hitting at all levels of leadership. It'd be like saying he's going to be rejected by the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. All of them. The whole structure of leadership is going to reject him. Every single one of them. And there's something interesting about this Greek word that's used here, that's translated rejection. It essentially means to be rejected as worthless or unfit after scrutiny or after examination. So that's what, this is what that means. The Jewish leaders are not just going to reject Jesus offhand. Their rejection will not be a quick decision or a rash decision. It's going to be calculated. They're going to hear what he has to say. They're going to watch him act. They're going to examine him. They're going to scrutinize him. And after all that, they're going to investigate him. And after all that, they're going to find him unworthy. They'll find him unfit. They will find him lacking as Messiah. And in fact, they will find him lacking of the right to live. God himself will be examined by the Jewish leadership, and they will find him unworthy of the right to life. They will examine the very Son of God in the flesh and will condemn him as a criminal. So the second mark of Messiah is that he will be rejected. The third mark is this, death. He will be murdered, executed. He's not just going to die, he's going to be intentionally killed. The very giver of life himself will be given a death sentence by mere men. Think about the weight of that for a second. The very God who gives breath to the lungs of men will be condemned by the use of that very breath that he gives. That's unworthy for life. In the words of Isaiah 53, again, it says he will be cut off from the land of the living. Men will murder God. Men will execute Jesus as a criminal. They will look upon him and declare, you are not worthy to continue living. And so they will kill him. Brings us to the fourth mark of the Messiah. The fourth thing that will mark the Messiah, Mark tells us, is resurrection. He will rise. After three days in a tomb, he will rise. Not after 20 minutes, not after one day, three days dead, he will rise. Death will not be able to hold him down. The grave will not be able to capture him and keep him. He will rise. He will rise to life victoriously. Psalm 16 prophetically puts it this way, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And so Jesus reveals this to the disciples for the first time, his divine his messianic mission. Suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. This is what he came to do. This is the way that he's going to achieve glory through suffering, through rejection, through death, and through resurrection. Now at this point, 
the disciples are probably just standing there kind of dumbfounded. Like, where did that come from? They're speechless. I mean, in their minds, this isn't what they signed up for. This isn't what Messiah was supposed to be. The Messiah was supposed to be a rescuer of Israel. The Messiah was supposed to come and take out the Romans. The Messiah was supposed to come and break the bonds of the Jewish people and establish his state. The Messiah was going to be a military ruler. This doesn't sound like rescue. It sounds like failure. Death, rejection, suffering. It sounds like failure. I have a sneaking suspicion that they didn't even hear the last part where he said he would rise because they were so caught up on the previous phrases. And he doesn't really go into it. He just says he will rise. They may not have even understood what he was talking about. Actually, we know they didn't. We'll see later. It seems like failure, suffering, rejection, and death. These are not exactly the qualities we look for in leaders. Suffering, rejection, and death. But in this statement that Mark writes, there's a hint that should help us understand Jesus' mission a little more. There's an interesting little word in verse 31 that if you're not careful, you might miss it. And it's this word translated as must. It's right there on the beginning of the second line. Must. It says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's in a very important word here. It's a word that communicates necessity. It's a word that often communicates the divine plan of God. It's used a lot like it is written in the Bible, right? That just means this is what's going to happen. God has written it from beginning to end. This is what's going to happen. In our context, it means exactly that. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. It's God's plan. So in other words, what Jesus is teaching them wasn't that his, this special mission is a great idea or something he hopes to accomplish. He wasn't teaching them that suffering and death were kind of an unfortunate end of his life. He wasn't teaching them that he had better plans, but, well, people rejected him, so he tried his hardest, oh well. No. Jesus is teaching them that this was the plan from the beginning. This was the plan from the time he was born, from even before that, from the beginning of the world. He has been preparing for this his whole life. This is why he came down from heaven and became a man to suffer, to be rejected, and to die. That is why God came in human flesh, to suffer, to be rejected, and to die, and to rise. And so he's saying to them, this isn't going to be an accident. It is the very plan and will of God, and it's going to happen. You can count on it. Now, you may have noticed, Mark's not showing us what Jesus actually said, He's kind of giving us a summary. Did Jesus quote Old Testament scriptures to them to show them? He could have. There are plenty of passages, as we've seen in Isaiah 53, that he could have quoted. Did he quote Isaiah 53? We don't know. Did he quote Deuteronomy 22? The story of the bronze serpent lifted up for the salvation of the people of Israel? We don't know. Did he quote any numerous amount of Old Testament passages that clearly reference him and are fulfilled in his mission? We don't know. We may not know exactly what he said, but we do know how he said it. We do know that he explained these things to them, and he did so in a new way. So how did he explain these things to them? Did he do it secretly, cryptically, or in rhymes and riddles? Take a look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, and he said this plainly. 
In other words, he said it openly. He told them these things frankly. He spoke with them boldly, clearly, and straightforwardly. No more parables, no more riddles, no more cryptic statements. For the first time here, Jesus has been absolutely clear and frank with his dear disciples. He's kind of pulled the curtain off, if you will. There's no more guesswork on their part as to the big picture of his mission. He has explained it to them, and he will continue to do so throughout the next two chapters. We'll see a rotation three times of Jesus explaining to them his messianic mission. Here's what I'm going to do as Messiah. They're going to misinterpret it, and then Jesus is going to give them an explanation of what it looks like to be a disciple of the Messiah. We're going to see that pattern three times. Today is the first half of one. There's no more guesswork. He's explained it to them clearly. His mission is clear as Messiah. And so I want us to think about this for a second. Because this seemingly small and unimportant little verse carries a weight of significance. We serve a God who makes himself clear. He reveals himself to us clearly. Just as Jesus has explained his mission to his disciples, we have the whole story right here. We have the entire story. From the beginning of creation to the redemption of mankind, all the way to the renewal of the heavens and earth in our hands today. It's the whole story. We have the very words of God that tell us plainly what has happened and what will happen. Even in our language, no doubt, not everybody has that. It's pretty simple. God created humankind. God loved humankind. Humankind sinned. All of humankind became tainted with sin. God promised to redeem us and bring us back to himself through a son in the line of Abraham. God preserved that line throughout history. Then that promised son came. His name was Jesus. God became a man in the person of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He suffered, was rejected, and was killed. But he rose again on the third day. Through this, atonement for sin was made. Righteousness was made available for all who will trust in Jesus by faith. And now, Jesus has ascended to his throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent the Holy Spirit into believers to empower us to spread the good news. And now, God is gathering his people into his kingdom. And one day soon, Jesus will return and establish his reign forever and ever. He will make all things new, and everything will be like it once was in Eden, perfect again. And God will dwell with his people once again. He has sent us out as messengers of the coming king. It's pretty simple. That's the story. That's the story of the Bible. That's the mission of the Messiah. We have it right here. It's glorious, but simple. And I think you would be hard-pressed to find many Christians who would disagree on that big storyline. Lots of little things, sure. But the big storyline's agreed on because it's clear. God has made it plain to us. This is what God has done and is doing. That's what life is all about. If you're a believer, this is literally the purpose of your life, to make God's glory known, to make his story known, to make the good news known throughout the world. We know these things. We don't have to argue about them. God has made it clear. And to be honest, we don't always do a good job of living in light of that. We get caught up in small details 
important details, but relatively small. We get struck down by hard things in our lives. And so I want to encourage you today, when you're wondering about the things in your life that happen, some small things, some big, where will you go to school? Where will you work? How many kids will you have? How are you going to pay the next bill? And on and on and on. How are you going to fix the car? All these different things that we struggle with. When you're suffering, think about the big picture. Think about the story that we know that we're a part of. Think about what we know to be true about who God is and what he's doing. Think about why you are here and what the purpose of your existence is. Meditate on that. That's the genius of the Lord's Prayer and why I wanted to say it this morning. It's so simple. You can almost sum up the Lord's Prayer in kind of one sentence. Father, your glory and mission is my first priority, and also, please give me my daily needs in light of that. You kind of see this juxtaposition of the big picture. Heavenly Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? That's the big picture. And then you see the small details. Give me this day, just my daily bread. Let me forgive people and lead me not into temptation. It's that. It's the big picture and the daily needs. And that's why the Lord's Prayer is so awesome. And this is how Jesus taught us to pray. It's a balm to the heart. It's a sweet prayer. And I pray that we as a church would pray like that. Would we pray for the big story? Would we pray that God would gather people into his kingdom? Would we pray that we would be a church that sends out our people as messengers to herald the good news to all who would hear? And would we pray as a church for the daily needs, for just some bread for today? Or that, Lord, today would I, would I be able to forgive as you've forgiven me? Lord, today would you lead me not into temptation, protect me from the evil one? These are simple things, but they are so profound, so profound. We pray like this because God has made it clear to us what he's doing. We serve a God who speaks to us plainly. And so Jesus spoke plainly with his disciples. Messiah's mission has been made absolutely clear. He told them clearly, plainly, what was going to happen to him. He was going to suffer. He was going to be rejected. He was going to be killed. And he would rise again. He taught this frankly to them. He has made it plain to us as well. And so what was their reaction? How did they react when their leader told them these things? We're going to see in the second half of 32, in verse 33, that they're not going to react well. Peter is going to stick his foot right in his mouth. Peter is going to rebuke Jesus. He's going to express his absolute disapproval of Jesus' mission. And Jesus is going to reveal the source of Peter's thinking, the source of this disapproval. So read with me in the second half of 32 and 33. It says this, And Peter, after Jesus said all these things, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. To put it plainly, Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. It's plain. That's it. I mean, let's think about this. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. You are the Christ. And we're all going, right on, Peter. Man, it's a pivotal moment. It's like the climax of Mark's gospel. You 
are the Christ, the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. And Jesus has basically said, yes, you are. Now I can finally explain to you what that means. Then Peter, hearing the explanation of Jesus' messianic mission, decides to take Jesus aside and have a little talk. I mean, this is serious. What Peter does to Jesus is kind of like what you do to a friend if you're out somewhere and they just get out of line. And you just kind of take them inside and go, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You know, that's, that's exactly what Peter's doing here. That word rebuke is a Bible word. We don't really use it in daily language. I mean, you're never really kind of like sitting around just, oh, I totally rebuked this guy the other day. We don't use it. What it means is to express severe disapproval. So Peter is going to tell Jesus, again, just to remind us, the son of the living God, that he's just said that. He's going to express severe disapproval with what he's just said. He's going to pull him inside and say, no, 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 Jesus, you've got it all wrong. What are you thinking? No, no, no. That's not what you're going to do. That's not what's supposed to happen. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I wonder what it would have been like to just be there. Okay, son of the living God, let me tell you how this is all going to go down. I mean, it's just incredible. Peter rebukes Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Jesus reveals the origin of Peter's disapproval. Satan. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, get back in line. Right now you're not being a disciple. You are thinking and talking just like Satan does. Not like God does. In other words, he's telling Peter that by disapproving of God's plan, Jesus' mission, he's acting just like Satan. He's acting just like Satan. It's pretty obvious, right? Who was the one who was trying to tempt Jesus away from God's plan? Satan. What is Peter doing now? The exact same thing. Jesus, you're not going to die. No, you're going to become king. You don't want, no, you're not going to be rejected. We're going to make you king. The thoughts and actions of Satan himself. What I find striking, though, is what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that Peter is setting his mind on the things of Satan. He says that Peter's problem is that he's setting his mind on the things of man. His mindset is worldly. It's the typical mindset of humans, in other words. Peter is too concerned with earthly things, and that mindset, Jesus says, is from Satan himself. That should terrify you. That terrifies me. I mean, when we think of things that are from Satan, we think of like pentagrams and witches and animal sacrifices and black robes and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You want to be like Satan? Set your mind on the things of this world. That's the satanic mindset. Earthly things. To have as your priority worldly, earthly stuff. And that is a temptation we all face. And it's so deceptive because it can come at us in so many different ways. And that's why I think it's so terrifying. I mean, think about it. If you are truly saved, Satan can't take you away from Jesus. He can't take your salvation. He can't do that. Jesus says that's not going to happen. He can't. He doesn't have that power. So what can he do? He can rob you of your effectiveness. He can steal your joy. He can steal your happiness. And he can take away your effectiveness for God's kingdom. He can get you so caught up in earthly, worldly concerns that you lose sight of God's mission, that you lose sight of your purpose as a Christian. He can take good things and tempt you to place them as your priority, to make an idol out of them. 
And at that point, you've lost focus of Jesus and his mission. He takes God's clear word to us and tempts us to lay it aside or to twist it into something else. We might not even realize we've done it, and then we're trapped. It might look something like this. You can whisper in your ear, you know, what you should really be concerned about right now is your retirement. Yeah, 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 you should focus on that. That's the most important thing in your life right now. You need to have a good retirement plan. You know what, you can give to the church later, but right now you just need to focus on your retirement plan. It's thinking the thoughts of men, thinking like Satan. Or how about this? Don't you really want to get married? Yeah, that's good. You should focus on that. Yeah, you should dwell on that. In fact, you should make that your number one priority. I mean, it should consume all your thoughts. Uh, And don't let anything get in the way of it. Thinking the thoughts of men, thinking like Satan does. Or, hey, you're young. You just need to live life right now. Have fun. Don't worry. Don't worry about responsibility. Don't worry about sin. You can clean up your life later. Now it's just time to have fun. It's thinking the thoughts of men, thinking like Satan. Or how about this? I know the Bible says to love your wife in a sacrificial way, but look at all the things she does. She's the problem, not you. I mean, you're not divorcing her, so that's good enough. I'm sure it's not that big of a deal to just be the typical cold, distant guy. That's how guys are supposed to be. It's normal. Thinking the thoughts of men, thinking like Satan. Or I know the Bible says to yield to your husband, but if you did that, I mean, who knows what might happen? Yeah, he's the problem, not you. You're not divorcing him. That's good enough. I'm sure you can just nag and nag and nag him about stuff. That's how marriage is supposed to be, right? That's just how everyone's marriage is. It's thinking the thoughts of men, thinking like Satan. Or how about this one? Yeah, I know the Bible says that, you know, it's through sharing your faith that God is going to save people, but you're not good at it. Just leave that to, like, the really spiritual Christians. You're fine just going to work, coming home, playing video games. Who cares? Thinking the thoughts of men, like Satan. Or lastly, you know, I know the Bible says to not let your speech be corrupting and sarcastic and hurtful to people, but it's funny, right? They're probably just too sensitive anyway. It's probably not that big of a deal. It's just your kind of humor, right? It's thinking the thoughts of men. It's taking clear things we know from God and saying, eh, it's not that clear. Mm, It's not that important. That's, that's what Satan tries to get us to do. That's what he did to Peter here. These are just some examples of ways that we set our mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. And when we do that, we have lost our effectiveness. We've lost our focus on the big picture. In a sense, we're rebuking Jesus like Peter did and saying, look, Jesus, I know you said this, but I'm just not going to do it. I'm doing it my way. I want you to hear that today. Because it's easy to look at Peter and go, what an idiot, right? We do the same thing in our hearts. You'll be so tempted to focus on earthly, worldly things. Satan will try to render you ineffective. But followers of Jesus realize this. Fight that. We sacrifice everything to maintain our commitment to the mission of Jesus Christ. Our priority is God's glory and the spread of his name. All else falls by the wayside in comparison. And you know what? We're going to fail from time to time. But friends, I want to remind you today that Jesus came to save sinners. Amen? His mission that we have been talking about this whole time was to save people who screw up, who get confused, who fall into temptation, who at times rebuke him. He came and died for people like us, his enemies, so that we might put our faith in him and that he might clothe us with all of his righteousness. 
That means when we fight, we fight in his power. When we fight and struggle with sin, we know that he lavishes grace and mercy on us. We do battle with Satan knowing that Christ has died and rose for our justification. And that there is no accusation that Satan can level against us that will stick. God accepts us. God forgives us. As Paul says in Romans, who can bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, if you know Jesus Christ, Satan can't say anything to you. He cannot accuse you of anything. He can't do it. It won't stick. God's already declared you free. He can't do anything. I love what Martin Luther used to say. I'm paraphrasing. But he said when the devil would come to accuse him, he would list off all these things, and Martin Luther would say, yeah, you know what, and you've even forgot a bunch of them. I've got a bigger list for you of things I've done that are horrible, but that's not my problem. Take that to Jesus. You go ask him about that. He's dealing with that problem now, so don't bother me with it. I love that because it's so true. And we've seen today, we've seen Messiah's mission, Jesus, the Christ. We saw that his mission was to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise. We saw that he made this clear to his disciples and that he made his plan and mission clear to us today. And we have seen that when we choose to focus on earthly things and not prioritize Jesus and his mission, we're thinking like Satan. We're falling for his traps. And we've seen that there's hope for us. Well, we were rough with Peter in the beginning of the message. We called him a loudmouth. And like I said, we all have those friends But one thing we know about those types of friends is sometimes they say the right thing. The thing that does actually need to be said, but everyone else is too afraid to say it. If they can learn to harness that boldness, they may become very effective in their speech. Well, some of you may know this happened to the Apostle Peter. At this stage in Mark, he may still be a work in progress. But I want to close today with the words of Peter from his very own pen that he penned 30 years later. Listen to the old man Peter, his words, and look how much work the Holy Spirit has done in his life. And let that give hope to you. The same man who rebuked Jesus now says this in 1 Peter 2, 21-25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you take a moment to respond to God's word to you this morning? Would you take a moment to respond to what God may be calling you to? Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, Lord, as a people who were once your enemies. We come before you, Father, as people who struggle with sin, as people who do battle with Satan. 
we come before you as people who are tempted often and often fall into temptation. But Lord, we come before you as people who believe in your son Jesus and who because of that are righteous in your sight. Lord, we love you and praise you for that. There's nothing we could do or say that would be a great enough praise to you for that. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus, for the Holy Spirit, for who you are, and for your divine mission to rescue sinners like us. We thank you that Jesus came to suffer. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to be rejected. He was willing to be murdered. And that he was powerful enough to rise again. in Glorious victory. Conquering sin, death, and Satan all in one fell swoop. And we thank you, Lord, that he is coming again to establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And that one day, Lord, we will dwell with you. You will be our God and we will be your people forever. Lord, we praise you for that. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would just drive these truths home deep into our hearts. That we would grab hold of you by faith, Lord. And Father, I pray for any people out here today who may be hearing this, Lord, who don't know you, who may be hearing this for the first time. Lord, I pray that like Peter and the disciples, like the blind men, would you open their eyes, God? Would you open their eyes and cause them to see the light of your son Jesus, of who he is and what he's done for them? Lord, would you just stoke that faith in their heart when they lay hold of him by faith? They trust in him and trust in his work. Father, we're here today to declare that we are unworthy, yet even in that, you have just lavished grace upon us. We praise and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.